The bedrock and surface deposits of Pennsylvania span over a billion years of geologic time. Pennsylvania literally rocks. Welcome to the PCPG podcast series. The Pennsylvania Council of Professional Geologists invites you to join us on a journey to explore the geology of the Keystone State and to meet the people who study it and work with it in their everyday lives. Welcome to the PCPG podcast, a poorly sorted but well-rounded series. I'm your host, Russ Lasco. Today I would like to continue to explore the state parks of Pennsylvania and their geologic history. Tucked down in the southeastern corner of Pennsylvania sits a very unique state park. Here where Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Maryland meet, here where a line was once drawn that would define not only the boundary between these three states, but later the difference between the Confederate and Union states, lies the White Clay Preserve. If you take a look at a map, one of the first things that catches the eye about this 3,000-acre park is that it adjoins an even larger 3,600-acre park in Delaware. In fact, the White Clay Creek Preserve in Pennsylvania is seamlessly connected to the Delaware Park, creating a preserve that spans nearly 7,000 acres. Recent land acquisitions that are adjacent to the two parks promise to swell these numbers significantly. Together, these two parks contain over 60 miles of trails. The parks are steeped in history that is both national as well as geologic. Delaware is the first state to ratify the Constitution. Pennsylvania is where the Declaration of Independence was written and passed and was the site of the nation's first capital. These are lands that were trodden by Native Americans of the Lenni Lenape people and their ancestors for thousands of years. This ground witnessed the spread of European settlers and the birth of a nation. This was the land where William Penn and the Quakers journeyed from England to settle and whose descendants, who by the way include my wife and children, still live here to this day. Here, the lines were drawn that would define the boundaries of modern states as we know them. In the 1760s, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon largely brought an end to the border disputes between Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania by surveying the Mason-Dixon line. The tri-state marker that marks the eastern end of the Pennsylvania-Maryland line and the northern end of the Delaware-Maryland line is found here in the park with a scenic four-mile loop trail that takes you to the marker near the midpoint of the hike. Seven miles south of here was the Battle of Cooch's Bridge. In this battle between the Continental Army and the British, the American flag was flown for the first time in war. Thirteen miles to the northeast was the Battle of the Brandywine. Thirty miles away, the Continental Army wintered in Valley Forge. Here it has been said that they entered camp in the fall as a rabble and left the camp in the spring as an army. This is your host with a little aside about the Battle of the Brandywine that may be of interest here. When the Revolutionary War began, munitions were in short supply for the Americans. The super weapons of the day were cannon, something that the British had and the Continental Army lacked. But some 30 miles to the north of the White Clay Creek sat Hopewell Furnace, an iron and steel producing mill sitting atop rich iron ore deposits. This facility, like many others in the colonies, 
were retasked to produce cannon for the Continental Army. These cannon proved to be invaluable, if somewhat unreliable. They occasionally misfired, and once in a while they would rather annoyingly blow up when fired. At the Battle of the Brandywine, which saw the largest number of combatants of the entire Revolutionary War, the Continental Army found itself outflanked by the British and was forced to withdraw and retreat. This was a classic case of losing the battle but winning the war. As the Americans retreated and the British advanced on Philadelphia, which was then the new nation's capital, suddenly having cannon became a liability. The cannon slowed the retreating army, and anybody being caught with cannon would be considered traitors by the British and risk execution. A number of cannon were buried to hide them in hopes that they could be recovered to fight another day. As it turned out, however, the French would enter the war on the American side less than six months later, supplying arms, including cannon, that were less likely to explode when fired. The Warwick-produced cannon slipped into oblivion. Until recently. Dr. Martin Helmke of Westchester University, who was well known for his abilities with aerial drones, was asked to look for buried cannon. After flying his drone with a magnetometer over similar cannon that had been preserved, the hunt was on, and the hunt produced four intact Warwick Furnace 18-pounder cannon, which got to see the light of day for the first time in nearly 250 years. I would love to go into more detail, but this might be better done in another podcast. The origin of the park is interesting. In the aftermath of World War II, concerns about fresh water supplies led to a plan to dam the White Clay Creek to produce a reservoir. Land was acquired by the Pennsylvania Railroad Company with an eye toward building the reservoir. The Pennsylvania Railroad Company was later acquired by the DuPont Corporation, which continued buying up land for the project. But by 1960, public opposition to the project began to grow. Eventually, the National Park Service encouraged DuPont to abandon the project and donate the land to Delaware and Pennsylvania to form the beginnings of the park and a deal brokered by a young, relatively unknown senator named Joe Biden. The abandonment of the reservoir plans did not sit well with everybody, however. At least one housing development had been constructed such that it would be waterfront when the reservoir was built. Abandonment of the project left these houses without the water view that they had been promised. The park contains both forest and open fields, hills and valleys, and of course the White Clay Creek, which was designated as a National Wild and Scenic River in 2000. The park is located in the Piedmont Upland section, north of the fall line that demarcates the transition to the Atlantic Coastal Plain. As such, it contains sections of rapids, but lacks any significant waterfalls because of its relatively low elevations. The trails here are varied in nature, with some being relatively level and easy, and others climbing up into the surrounding hills. Still, these aren't the grueling trails of Ricketts Glen, are the relatively level ridge tops of the Laurel Highlands. The trails of the white clay have a unique character all their own. 
Anyone who has hiked along creeks in the rest of Pennsylvania might notice a significantly different feature here simply by walking out to the edge of the stream. Instead of the rounded stream pebbles and cobbles found elsewhere in the state, the river stones here are angular or subangular. The rounded stones of stream beds common elsewhere in the state are almost non-existent here. Certainly part of the reason may be the slower moving, less energetic waters found here, but the main reason for this is obvious on close examination of the rocks. Unlike those in most of Pennsylvania, these are high-grade metamorphic rocks, schists, gneisses, and an abundance of large quartz nodules. These rocks are much more angular because they are hard. There's an old saying among geologists that rocks in western Pennsylvania go thud when you strike them with a hammer. Those in the southeast go ping. In fact, the classic rock hammer is rarely used by geologists in this formation. Instead, a two-pound sledgehammer is preferred. These rocks are distinctly different both in age and composition from the rocks found elsewhere in the Commonwealth. The geology of this region stands in stark contrast to that of the rest of Pennsylvania. Unlike the Carboniferous shales of my childhood outside of Pittsburgh, or the Silurian and Devonian sandstone of the glaciated plateau, or the glacial deposits of the Northwest, the rocks of the White Clay Park and adjacent Piedmont are far older. These are lower Paleozoic rocks of the Brandywine terrain. Specifically, this is the Mount Cuba Nice, formerly referred to as the Glenarm Wissahickon Formation. It's composed largely of mica schist and mafic gneiss. These rocks are intruded and were locally rehydrated by metamorphic fluids and granitic magmas, forming abundant quartz veins and granite pegmatites. This process has left the rocks with abundant muscovite mica, as well as white and pink felspars and lots and lots of quartz. These rocks were old when the coal seams of western Pennsylvania were being deposited. They were ancient when the first dinosaurs strode the landscape. When the ice of the Wisconsin glaciation was sculpting the northern portion of Pennsylvania, these rocks had been on the earth for almost a half a billion years. This formation dates to as old as 470 million years ago. Once thought to be even older, these rocks were born out of the violent collision of modern-day North America and a volcanic island arc in the Silurian and Devonian periods. The sediments that were the precursors of the Mount Cuban Nice originated in three different settings. The first are oceanic sediments deposited in accretionary prisms accumulated as the island arc approached and collided with the North American craton. Accretionary prisms are the wedge-shaped sediments that pile up within and before a subduction trench where an oceanic tectonic plate is diving downward under an island arc or a continental plate. The second setting consists of sediments deposited in a forearc basin, which is the section between an island arc and the accretionary wedge. The third are flish deposits resulting from plate collision. Flish consists of sedimentary rock layers that are deposited in settings that range from deep water and turbidity flow deposits to shallow water mudstones and sandstones. 
It is often composed of repeating sequences of upwardly fining sediments ranging from coarse breaches or conglomerates at the bottom of the sequence, grading up to siltstones and claystones at the top. These sediments, or protoliths, were later buried and subjected to high heats and pressures that gradually, over very long periods of time, transformed them into their current form. As a result of the collision between the island arc and the continents, the rocks were highly deformed. The regional metamorphism that produced these rocks occurred deep within the Earth's lithosphere, kilometers deep. Since it occurred at depth, exposure of rocks like this takes a very long time. Metamorphic rocks are unusual in Pennsylvania as a whole. As a child growing up in the Ohio Valley, northwest of Pittsburgh, I thought the whole world was made of sedimentary rocks. But here in the Piedmont, metamorphic rocks are the rule. Metamorphism results when rocks are buried and subjected to high heat, typically above 100 degrees Celsius, and high pressure, usually above 3,000 atmospheres. But the rocks of the Wissahickon Formation are high-grade metamorphics, so the temperature most likely exceeded 500 degrees Celsius, and the pressures may have approached 10,000 atmospheres. At these temperatures and pressures, the primary minerals are no longer stable, and they transform into new ones, like the micas, the clear muscovite, and the black biotite, and the semi-precious garnet that is so prevalent to the east of here. Generally, the elemental composition of the metamorphic rocks remains the same or similar to that of the protolith. A good analogy for anyone familiar with iron and steel production is the difference between cast iron and the high-carbon steel that knives are made from. The two are elementally very similar, being about 98 to 99% iron. But cast iron is brittle and porous. When struck with a hammer, it makes a dull thud. But take that cast iron and heat it to around 200 degrees Celsius, coincidentally the same temperature at which low-grade metamorphism begins, and add a little carbon, just a half a percent to one and a half percent, subject it to some pressure, maybe by some prodigious hammering, and everything changes. The end product is steel that is hard and solid and that rings when you strike it or that makes that distinctive sound when a good sword is drawn. Examining the rocks along the White Clay Creek, the difference between these rocks and those of other parts of Pennsylvania are immediately obvious. These rocks sparkle in the sunlight due to the high muscovite mica and quartz content. Occasionally, a specimen with black biotite mica can be found. Dark-colored, banded mafic gneiss is very regularly found and often was used as bed material for the trails. Quartz nodules are very common. These are not the rounded quartz pebbles common in the conglomerates of Pennsylvania that were formed by the erosion of the Appalachians. These quartz nodules are large and angular. It's not uncommon to find specimens the size of cement blocks, and occasionally boulder-sized examples can be found. These are born of sometimes thick veins of predominantly white quartz that was intruded into the bedrock during metamorphism. Superheated water carrying silica and solution permeated the rocks 
and given the chance, would infiltrate into cracks and voids, cooling and precipitating the quartz within the void space. Ironically, one of the things that isn't found in abundance in the park is white clay. Although the depletion of iron caused by saturation with water can form white or gray colors in any setting, white clay is fairly rare here. It's possible that the name actually derives from significant deposits nearby to the northeast of feldspar-rich intermediate gneiss that weathers to kaolinite, which is a bright white clay mineral. This kaolinite was mined for a number of uses, including for the treatment of canvases for artists. Impregnating the canvas with kaolinite allows the paint to adhere better. This use of the mineral resources helped to support the Brandywine art tradition. These canvases support the vivid paintings of famous artists like Andrew and Jamie Wyeth, Philip Jamison, Tom Bostell, and Harry Dunn. In general, the soils found in the park and in the surrounding watershed tend to be deep and contain abundant amounts of muscovite mica. Plowed fields on a sunny day often sparkle with the sun reflecting off of the mica flakes. The deep nature of the soil reflects the extreme age of the underlying formation. The soil of the region attests to another aspect of the area's geologic history. The Pleistocene glaciations never directly impacted this area. The nearest approach of the Laurentide ice sheet stopped about 90 miles to the north. Nonetheless, paraglacial conditions prevailed in this area during the ice ages. Recent research at Westchester University has identified windblown luss that has added to the shallow soils of this area. This luss originated in the glacial scouring of the continental glacier to the north and were born on the strong catabatic winds that swept southward. Luss is best known as the thick deposits in the Great Plains of the Midwest, but enough of it was deposited here to be readily noticeable and have likely contributed to the rich agricultural history of the area. Occasionally wedge casts can be found in the subsurface here. These form when extremely cold and dry air, such as is found during ice ages, causes the ground surface to crack open. These cracks are then infilled with the windblown luss, leaving a visible remnant in the form of a wedge-shaped cast in the soil profile. The waters of the White Clay Creek seasonally support a stock trout population, but are too warm for native trout to reproduce. It's not considered a high-quality stream because it doesn't support the insect life or freshwater mussels indicative of such waters. This is largely the result of a watershed which historically supported widespread agriculture. The sediments eroded from the agricultural fields have blanketed the stream bottom with a layer of silt which impairs healthy aquatic life. Still, the water is very clean and suitable for both swimming and fishing. These lands were born of tectonic collision, erosion, deposition, and metamorphism. Here, continents collided and clashed, and the Appalachian Mountains rose to the west, at their zenith looming larger than today's Himalayas. As the continents receded and split back apart, the once magnificent mountains slowly eroded. The rocks exposed here knew the first trilobites, the first land plants, and the emergence of amphibians. 
It witnessed the rise of the dinosaurs and stood witness to their demise. Mammoths, mastodons, dire wolves, and saber-toothed cats roamed these lands in the geologically recent past. When you have a chance to walk the trails of the white clay, pause and contemplate the fact that these rocks may have been deposited when the most complex organisms on the planet were squid-like cephalopods in the oceans, and the only living things on land were less complex than modern-day mosses. These rocks are among some of the oldest in North America. They were here long before us, and they will be here long after we are gone. Walking the trails of the white clay, regardless of which state you find yourself in, is a walk through a very unique terrain and a journey back in time. This episode of the PCPG podcast is dedicated to the memory of Barbara Dunst, a fine geologist, an inspiring leader, and a good friend who is sorely missed. This episode of the PCPG podcast, a poorly sorted but well-rounded series, is a production of the Pennsylvania Council of Professional Geologists. A special thank you to Cheyenne DeLawrence for the introduction, and a special thank you to Dr. Leanne Srogi for her up-to-date information on the geology of the White Clay area. These podcasts are hosted on several platforms and are also available on the PCPG website. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking a moment to give us a rating and leave us a comment to let us know what you think. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. PCPG is a nonprofit organization working to advance the practice of geology and the allied sciences and the success of our members through advocacy, education, and networking. Whether you're a corporation, a professional, or a student, please consider becoming a PCPG member today. Just visit our website, pcpg.org, and be sure to check out the resources tab. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Russ Lasco.